This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Recorded in front of a live audience at Dragon Meat, amid the impersonal grandeur of the Hotel Novotel Hammersmith. That's Hammersmith, the only London neighborhood that is also a D&D character build. Because as we all know, Bishop Helmuth is not a character class, but the NPC who gives you the mission. Bandwidth and travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We can't predict topics. But they just might include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. That weird article you forwarded us. And of course, food. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I'm Mrs. Claus. Ho, 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 and I'm Santa Claus, here to spill the cocoa beans on the kerfuffle here at the North Pole. Kerfuffle? What kerfuffle? Well, you see, my dear, the elves have been acting a bit, hmm, strangely in the workshop. Oh, Santa, what's going on with our elves? Rumor has it a pesky imp has sneaked into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. Oh my goodness, a mischievous imp at the North Pole. Yes, indeed, and the tricky part is our elves can be quite the mischief makers themselves, so I'm having trouble telling who's the imp. And that's where Weird Little Elf comes in, right? Exactly. Weird Little Elf is a holiday card game for all ages. Players take turns being me, ho, 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 Santa, and ask the elves one simple question. And the rest play the elves who answer the question. But secretly, one of them is the imp, following a special rule like scratch your nose or cross your eyes that they have to do on the sly. Accuse the imp correctly three times and you win. Plus, it's an acute palm-sized box. Perfect for a stocking stuffer. You can get your holiday shopping done early and give a delightful surprise to your family, co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. And don't forget our gamer buddies. Ho, 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 they'll love it. We can get one for them and maybe sneak in a few rounds ourselves. So this Christmas, let's spread some cheer with Weird Little Elf, the ultimate holiday party game. Ho, ho, ho. So uh, at the beginning of our live events, uh, we begin by rather than shouting out particular specific beloved Patreon backers to invite any Patreon backers currently in the audience to stand up and be uh, worshipped and adored by everyone else. So let's have a, a stand up on the part of the backers. Their all-important financial support makes this podcast uh, possible because otherwise, Ken and I would have done the math and stopped doing the show. Yeah. Um, so now, speaking of traditions of the live show, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Nerd Trope cards. Uh, we have a deck of nerd cards. We have a deck of trope cards. And uh, Ken, you can affirm, uh, first of all, that uh, we have never met. We have never met. So you will not be... Uh, there's, there's not there's a... No, there's no uh, shifting, no forcing, no shilling. No. No trickery involved. Yeah. As I draw the nerd card... World War II. Mm, an obscure historical obscure topic. Obscure topic. And Time Door, draw a second nerd card. The second nerd card is Peloponnesian War. Ooh. So that's it. We're not adding anything else. We just have a Time Door between that's Peloponnesian the time door War says. Yep. and World War II. All yep. right. Obviously, what we've got is some sort of war echo. I suppose we would say 
This is Ares messing with stuff, possibly messing with Wonder Woman, certainly messing with us, beloved history experiencers. So, Ares has opened a time door from the Peloponnesian War to World War II, the war that is the most Ares-y of wars, and that is super interesting and fixating and fascinating and full of, of drama and heroism, while also killing an abysmal amount of people. So it, it's both of Ares' uh, sides, his, his artistic side and his uh, sadistic side. So Ares has opened this time door, and it is not a matter necessarily of letting the Nazis go back in time, let Sparta win, and uh, enlarge the intellectual role of fascism in the Western world. It is not not that, but it is also about Ares feeding the energies of World War II into the Peloponnesian War to make them larger and more epic, so that he has two epic conflicts at each end of the time door, which, when the Peloponnesian War gets World War II-y enough, will rip open, and there, instead of a time door, there'll be a time canyon full of everything from the Siege of Syracuse to the Siege of Stalingrad, joined in one endless nightmare of killing and slaying for all time. And that's uh, what Ares is up to. So, what's going on? Yes, there are time Nazis going back and trying to make fascism win. Yes, then there are time Americans and, and whatnot going back and trying to make democracy win. The time Soviets, frankly, are confused. They have no idea what they're doing. But they're up, they're up to something. One assumes that they're probably attempting to accelerate the fall of Greek democracy Rather than via Sparta, which is fascist, they're doing it through the Persian Empire, which is a monarchy, and so therefore falls under standard Marxist understandings of history. They accelerate the rise of the monarchy, then that accelerates its internal contradictions. It will then be replaced by a Persian Soviet. I think that's the general outline right, of the time Soviet. When you're a Soviet, the general rule is uh, to try and make everything worse. Right, yeah. That, it's true at home, it's true abroad. So, uh, this is uh, the three sides are involved. Meanwhile, everyone that goes through the time warp is feeding Ares' plan. He just wants everyone to fight. He doesn't, he's not rooting for a side, he's rooting for the existence of the giant time war. So, both in ancient Greece and in the 1940s, we have various figures who are attempting to short-circuit Ares' plan. Some of them are using magic to do it. Some of them, uh, like Socrates, is attempting to use pure reason to do it. Uh, good luck, Socrates. And, and uh, a, a series of actions by which, rather than bringing, uh, you know, supermarine spitfires back to strafe the Syracusans at the uh, Siege of Syracuse, you are also attempting to uh, create within the Periclean Golden Age, the spirit of uh, the anti-war, of love and, and, and harmony and dance and, and the, the arts. You, you know, you're also influencing Aeschylus and Sophocles and those guys. So what basically you have uh, happening is the 1940s artistic community attempting to influence the birth of Greek drama to make it even more humanistic than it was before. So you are uh, attempting to get the Athenian players, it's like, let's move it past the chorus, let's introduce third characters so that we can do, you know, Shakespeare. Let, let, let's see what we can do. And uh, the invocation of the muses to stop Ares is the actual productive action, which is not to say that shooting time Soviets and time Nazis is not unproductive, it's just going to help Ares. So right. the tension in the game is the individual player has to determine, well, I want to kill Nazis. They need killing. They're here. If they win, it's bad. But every time I kill a Nazi, it crosses off something on the big chart. And so I've got to go and uh, encourage a, uh, a humanistic culture uh, to grow out of this by uh, 
feeding the Athenian Golden Age with the fruits of all Western civilization subsequent. Right. Now, you mentioned Wonder Woman earlier. I did. The common denominator between both sides of the time door is Paradise Island. How does that figure in? Themyscira, Paradise Island, which is uh, off the northern coast of Turkey, if anyone is asking historically, it might be anywhere in the 40s. I don't speak to that. But uh, what it serves as is a sort of, um, I, I assume it's the aircraft carrier of peace and progress. And so you can't land on Themyscira, but Themyscira sends missions out to amplify the work of the muses, and your sort of mission as time heroes is to help out these Amazons. They're not all going to be Princess Diana. She's the best Amazon. But there may be an individual Amazon, and she's maybe a super great astronomer, Urania. And so you have to escort her. You have to have have escort or protection mission. You have to do things that the Themyscirans want to uh, counter Ares. They become sort of your your M. You know, uh, the the, the fresco you're watching will disintegrate in two minutes type situation. And so the uh, Paradise Island is, you know, they'll heal you with a purple ray. They'll uh, provide uh, support, but they can't come in and join the fight, because if Amazon's joined the fight, it becomes such an amazingly cool fight that Ares wins immediately. And so that's why it has to be schmucks like you, the player characters. And that was the London 2023 Nerd Trope to card. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoch Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. So now we move uh, to the final part and, and meat of a live episode, which is uh, the expert questions that you, the experts in the audience, are going to lob at us. And we are going to endeavor 
to uh, repeat the question. Last year in London, the, we had mics for the audience, and I thought, oh, this is great. I won't have to have the question repeated. But I discovered that when you give a British person a microphone, they talk even quieter. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this time around, we're going back to the old technology of uh, shouting. Of we will be tempted not to repeat the question because it's funnier that way. But then you will yell at us to repeat the question so that uh, not only you in the audience, but uh, the listening audience at home can hear the question that has been posed. So who wishes to step forward with the bold question that we will not fail to repeat? So what is the occult reason that the British government wants to hold on to uh, what it charmingly calls the Elgin Marbles? That's right. Uh, because when you steal something, you name it after yourself. Right. Or you name it after the guy who stole it. Right. I mean, it, it's not the British Museum Marbles. It's the Elgin Marbles. Yeah. Right. Because the, the Elgin wasteland in Beijing was, you know, didn't stick somehow. Yeah. When he burned down the Forbidden City. Different Elgin, but same lordship. First of all, uh, the Elgin Marvels, the Parthenon Friezes, they depict the Titanomachy, the war between the gods and the titans. They depict the war between the Athenians and the centaurs. So there is obviously some degree of occult mastery in having the perfect depictions of these titans. Right, because what's better is a spoil of your empire as a cosmic battery that will make you even more of an empire. But I guess splitting them up, that only lasted for so long. Perhaps this was the, the harbinger that, you know, that, the, uh, that Elgin wound up basically uh, getting a, a buffalo nickel, a wooden nickel of antiquities, because things started to go downhill after that. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, and, and perhaps people in, in England can identify with this, if you put in a modern stove, but you haven't updated the electrical system, all you're doing is setting your house on fire. So the Elgin marbles are this incredible, as you say, cosmic battery, but the wiring of the British Empire was, was laid in like 1590 by John Dee. It's not up to code uh, for the Elgin marbles. And so that ongoing series of electrical fires is what the uh, occult core of uh, the British uh, government has been attempting to damp out. But by now, if they get rid of the Elgin marbles, if they right. give them back to Greece, then the whole system goes dark. Right. And ongoing series of electrical fires basically describes the current British government. Right. <laughs> Next question. The Spartans... So, so the, the yeah. question is, oh, sorry, yeah. hey, I thought the Spartans won. What's up, Ken? Right. Um, the Spartans uh, win the second Peloponnesian War, uh, the one uh, from 412 to 404, often called, I believe, the Archidamian War, unless that's the prequel of the Peloponnesian War. I'm not, I'm not all the way up on all my Peloponnesian Wars. But the big one, the one with Pericles in it, pre-Siege of Syracuse, that one was a draw. That's the important one. Then Athens get the bright idea to attack Syracuse for no reason and the whole system falls apart. That's what Sparta won. But if Sparta wins the first one, then they don't wind up needing to fight the whole second war. They're in a much better position, et cetera, et cetera. And also, they haven't weakened themselves so badly in that second round of the Peloponnesian Wars that Epaminondas can march in 20 years later and just burn the whole place down. So, uh, again, it's, 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 not a, it's not a who, but it's a when. So don't worry, yes, the Spartans won the second Peloponnesian War. But again, the Spartans got 20 years of, not even 20 years of hegemony out of, out of it. The Athenians kept their cultural dominance, and then basically it was a free-for-all until the Macedonians came and slapped everyone around. So uh, next question. Okay, so, okay. Uh, I'm, uh, so the question is, what is the uh, perfect gaming snack that is nonetheless classy and grown-up? 
and as uh, this question initially was being posed, I, I had the answer to the what is the low rent gaming, perfect gaming snack, which of course is bits and bytes, which I don't know if any other market has that, so you're out of luck if you're not Canadian. But uh, I think the classy gamer snack for the upscale gamer is obviously a charcuterie board, right? Uh, your assortment of delicious cheese, or for those of you who, us who are carnivores, or a selection of delicious meats, olives. It gets no more residue on your miniatures than, say, cheese nachos, which is, say, considerable residue, but uh, <laughs> I, that, that would have to be it. Yeah, I would say um, uh, charcuterie board is terrific. We have had great fortune with uh, uh, cheese boards in my games. I would say if you're you know, blue-skying this, I think spring rolls are kind of an ideal gaming snack because that, uh, the, the wrapper holds all the fun part inside, and the only chance is you might dump the peanut sauce on yourself, but that's really between you and your god. That's a skill issue. So I, I think that uh, charcuterie board is great. Spring rolls are great if you can get a hold of a lot of them. Uh, that's the other sort of thing a gaming snack needs is volume. So yeah, I would say that. Failing that, caramel corn. It's uh, classier than uh, chips. It's very hard to make stickier. You know, the stickiness stays on the caramel corn, doesn't really get onto your stuff. So, you know, any kind of fancy kettle cooked popcorn is actually a pretty great gaming snack and generally unless you put cheese powder on it it's not going to get anywhere that regular snacks don't and for your your truly high net worth uh, gaming group this goes beyond the issue of residue you would uh, have a a sushi bar and you would have someone uh, available one of your servants to shuck to shuck oysters for you right and whenever you rolled a critical you would also get an oyster right yeah (laughs) next question what is the best uh, die and why? Well, the best die, obviously, is the one that you just rolled a critical on and got and an oyster got an for. Oyster, yeah. uh, that would be the best die ever. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, maybe this is just uh, having been Peterson pilled from a start. The D10 with another matching D10 is hard to beat. I mean, it's not... Individually, D10s are kind of, you know, weak sauce. They're not as fun as a D8. They're not as cool as a D12. But two D10s together, unstoppable. And I think that's really a message for all of us. Uh, for, uh, for me, it's aesthetically the D12, uh, because it's sort of, it's the one that's the greatest art object, because it looks very cool and is kind of useless. Um, <laughs> however, I have to say that the, suddenly I've acquired a, a new appreciation for the D30, because I don't know those of you who are watching Alex D'Iglesias' uh, HBO Europe series, 30 Coins, the first season, which I highly recommend, is a very cool, modern, sort of horror in a small town sort of situation. And then, and there's little bits in the corner where he sort of says, you know, I'm a Call of Cthulhu GM too, right? And then the second season is the, it's the greatest adaptation of horror role-playing to a film medium ever. And I was about to say that on social media, and then Paul Giamatti as the evil genius pulls out a 30-sided die and puts it on the table. And I was thinking, why a 30-sided die? That's not, Oh, 30 coins, of course. So due to its association with uh, 30 coins, which I highly recommend to everyone who uh, hasn't yet jumped in, it's almost as good as a D12 because it is also an art object in that it's statistically even more useless than a 12. Right. And so Luzaki is the harbinger. We, right. Well, we didn't know we needed it. Luzaki designed the D32. Uh, well, he designed I, a bunch of those. Right. Yeah. But I remember the D32 because I was at a, a Gamma trade show convention in New Orleans uh, where he and his Dixieland band played because that's the music you want to see in New Orleans is Luzaki's Dixieland band. And then he got up and, and, a, and a gave a touching speech 
in which he said that he just designed a D32 and would very much appreciate it if the game designers would create a use for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's driven by art. Exactly. Not but, by engineering. Or statistical need. Right. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Next question. The question is, how do Ken and Robin fare as players in historical games? And the answer is, the, even more broadly, neither of us gets to play very often at all, right, yeah. historical or otherwise. It's very rare. I'm a terrible player because I'm a GM. And so I have all the GM habits. You know, I, I, I lecture, I derail. I, I just, I'm a terrible player. In a historical game, I am also a show-off, frankly. <laughs> uh, just, you know, short form, I, I think... In this room, the only person, besides our Friday night Pelgrane games, which are problematic in and of themselves, the only person who's actually played with me is James Holloway. And uh, I was the Chicagoan in the Unknown Armies game where we were all playing Chicago cops. And I don't think it was my historicism that was the problem there, but the fact that I was the only Chicagoan in the room of people playing Chicago cops, and they were all saying, oh, it's a man with an axe. We should give him a caution. It's like, you should shoot him and lie. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Next question. So the, the question is roll high versus roll low fight. Do you want to take? Well, I think roll high. Okay. I'll take roll low then. Okay. Roll high because high is good is intuitive. Right. Screw you. <laughs> Roll low because you're rolling under a target number. And uh, you can set the target number, and so rolling under the target number is a more intuitive thing than rolling over the target number. So, back at you twice. <laughs> next question. What is the next art movement that we're keen to explore in role-playing? I don't think that we've quite, quite finished surrealism. I just discovered... Uh, I went to the Art Institute to see two, count them, two Caravaggios, not that I'm bitter, and we had a lot of time to kill because we thought there would be more Caravaggios. We were informed wrong. And so we said, uh, what's this exhibit in the contemporary wing, Remedios Varro, and it was called Science Fictions. And we said, well, how bad can it be? Maybe there'll be a spaceship. We walk in, Remedios Varro is an insanely great Spanish-Mexican surrealist painter. She was part of the surrealist scene in Paris and then driven away by the Nazis, moved to Mexico City, and basically married a rich German guy who 
you know, prevented her from having to work by paying all of her bills and whatnot and supporting her artistically. So she's like neighbors and buddies with Leonora Carrington, and there's this wonderful uh, explosion of surrealism in Mexico City. And I've done, you know, uh, Dreamhounds of Brooklyn and Dreamhounds of Chicago. So at the very least, I owe the universe a page XX on Dreamhounds of Mexico City. So surrealism has still got lots more stuff to unpack. That said, I do like Robin's uh, conceit that the old dreamlands were done by the symbolists, and then he just moves on. And I, I say, but, but, <laughs> I want to hear about that now. I want to know about, you know, Jerome uh, men- melding the dreamlands with his experience of Egypt and Syria. I want, I want that, you know, flow across notion. And this is even before we get into, you know, the uh, occult architecture of Lake Corbusier and the Bauhaus, uh, you know, letting evil into the world by having too many right angles, you know. In the back of my head, I'm thinking of something in the Georgian era, early Georgian era. So I think possibly like a, an interesting thing to explore would be like William Hogarth and there'd be a battle of satirical drawings which would have a subliminal level of combat so that the way that you would manifest uh, magic against your enemies would be to... Uh, to lampoon them. Yes, to lampoon them. And you, would, you wouldn't just stop at drawings. You could, pan, you know, pamphlets would have magical mm. powers. and uh, It would be the, the old druidic uh, Bardet curse. Yes. Just transferred into the Georgian era. Yes, exactly. And, of course, Steve asked this question because he has basically uh, finished doing William Blake for us with Fearful Symmetries. So that, that lets me off. About every ten years I try to do William Blake in a game and fail. So Steve has basically reset my clock. I don't have to try William Blake again until like 2030. Next question. If we have to put together a team of game designers to steal the Magic D20 that gives Wizards of the Coast control of the industry, who would we pick? I think we'd want an inside man. Yeah, obviously. Uh, we both know which inside and man we would And we both know pick, which inside man, but we can't say it because that's a terrible OPSEC. Right. So that would be one of them. Right. <laughs> And then Scott Glancy for access to weapons. I yeah. think that's, you know, the obvious... Right. Sandy Peterson would create a distraction by uh, discoursing on any topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would use Ken for that, but we don't want him to possibly get arrested. Right. It's, it's called cutouts. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Emily Kerr Boss, could, uh, she'd be the mastermind. She'd yes. organize everything. She would make, make, make sure that everyone did their job on time well and correctly. Well prepared, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, I guess, Robin would bring snacks. Yeah. yeah, if I have a big enough budget, you'll get oysters. Well, that, that's, that's down to Emily, but yes, yeah. I, think, I think that's possible. Next question. The question is, what are the qualities that make for a good solo RPG play experience? And this is one player, not one player and one GM, correct? Uh, right, although I would be happy to hear about the other one too. Yeah, well, the other one, Robin has written like three books on it, so I would say, you know, check Cthulhu Confidential, look at uh, the Nice Black Agent solo ops, and the upcoming... Paragon Blade. Paragon Blade, and your upcoming... Uh, first edition. First edition, is that it? We're no, it's, that it's, we're struggling over the title, right. but still, but, it, as announced, it's called First Edition. Okay, it'll, it'll be a dramatic role-playing a la drama system, but for one player and one GM. Now, in terms of straight-up solo play... And here we're talking about things like Thousand Year Vampire and uh, stuff like that. Not necessarily the sort of choose-your-own-adventure, alone-against-the-dark, which is great fun, but I don't think is really what you're asking about. Um, Because there's nothing wrong with choose-your-own-adventure. It's a noble technology. I'm just not sure that it is role-playing at its finest. Um, I think the quality that I would look for in a good, involving solo RPG is that it would have the best of the lyric games trend in which the goal is to instantiate in the player an emotional state. 
And that is easiest, obviously, in solo play because you don't have to share it with a bunch of other losers, many of whom are on their phone. You personally are getting to experience this moment of angst or beauty or regret or longing or whatever it is, and you can do that in the same way that you can commune individually with any piece of art. And then the other half of it has to be that there has to be some engaging mechanical system that makes it different from just watching a really good movie or reading a really good poem or any other lesser form of art. And that is where I think we are still figuring out as a design community. I think the interesting play space for that is the fact that the uh, game dictates to the player who the character is, uh, which brings you closer to traditional fiction because the paradox typically of role-playing narrative is that it's a story which until you hit the table and play with it where the game doesn't know who the protagonists are. And so you can uh, do things like you can explore being an anti-hero because you know, uh, people in you know, straight-up literary fiction, the, the thing about that that differentiates it from the sorts of stories that uh, almost exclusively every school of gaming currently deals with is wish-fulfillment stories. Uh, whether they're aspirational or just procedural things where the character solves problems and wins. So you can explore the many narratives of great literature where you don't win, where you have a, a spiral into doom that is caused by either a mistake you've made, as in the classical Greek version, or uh, currently you know, the psychological version of sort of your, uh, just the trouble of the human condition. So I would think that, for me, the question would not be what mechanic do you want to make this good, but how do you use the particulars of this subgenre to expand the art form? And so one way to do that is something like, you know, here's essentially, you know, something like, you know, doing a, a uh, Philip Roth novel as a, a solo adventure experience, I think would, uh, or like, you know, do, or an updated version of that would be to, you know, do the solo version of Fleischmann is in trouble. Uh, and possibly there, it's like where you would suddenly dis- discover partway through as you, uh, the viewpoints of other characters, that you are initially introduced to characters in one way and you're seeing them in a flawed way, and then somehow the game represents you and repositions you so that maybe you don't even know when you're starting that you're playing an anti-hero or an unsympathetic character. Right, that the, uh, that the notion is you go on and then at some point you turn over what uh, Maud thinks of you and it's like, oh, that's awful, I, I, I feel bad now. And probably because of the human pattern matching instinct, it, Mod will be right, even though she printed it on the card well before that you ever picked up the, the game. In Delta Green... Cosmic Terror meets Modern Conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. Another question. Uh, many fields have what they call hard problems. What are the hard problems of tabletop role-playing? Getting people to attend. <laughs> <laughs> Attendance problems. And then, I mean, that's glib, but it also speaks to sort of the nature of our art form, that it does require a number of participants, the entire previous question aside. And the interplay between the social and the mechanical is important in making a role-playing game succeed. It's not a hard problem. It's the problem of getting along with other people. So it's either an impossible problem or it's a solved problem. Take your pick. But that is, a, that, that is an important aspect of it, and I think people generally don't consider that as much as they maybe ought to. I think that Robin, to a very large degree, is helping to solve one of the things that I thought was a hard problem and may still be a hard problem. Robin's drama system to present uh, and gamify struggles of personality as opposed to, you know, sword fights. I've often thought that the medical procedural, which is a hugely rich form, is nearly impossible to present at the table, but I feel like, you know, you can sort of see around the corner to how that could be solved. Capers are still super hard to do correctly, and I know that we all love Blades in the Dark, but Blades in the Dark tears down 75% of the assumptions of role-playing to do it, and I still think maybe does not quite get where it's solved. It's a lemma, right, to, to use that uh, metric. Um, and so there's other sorts of even procedural fiction that you'd think would be our bread-and-butter expertise that we have not quite gotten our head around. And, of course, speaking of Emily Care Boss, she's been out there saying, what about the fundamental subject matter of virtually all Western art? Uh, how about a game about that once or twice? So games about not just emotional contesting and, and, and emotional um, uh, conflict, but also games about you know emotional hit points. You know what happens to you after your 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 second failed love affair? How are you different than you were at the beginning? Mechanically representing that, me representing those kinds of things, and internal emotional states is a hard problem almost definitionally because you are really, in some mechanical sense, being invasive into the player experience. And we're beginning to, uh, with the story game movement, accept, we're having a new body of players that will accept that kind of invasion, but it's a whole different thing to accept the invasion and say, oh, you're, you're charming mouse people and you will never have a fight, to be, oh, uh, your heart has been broken and now you have to live with those consequences. That's, many people are more gun-shy about that kind of thing. And so I think that Emily has been doing you know, initial pioneering work on, on that. And in, in terms of um, mechanics, I don't even know... Every time Jason Morningstar designs a game, I realize that there were mechanical hard problems that he solved, but I didn't know they existed yet. So I'm sure that there's plenty more of those, and uh, 
you know, just watch Jason Morningstar's career for them to be knocked down one after the other. There's a great untackled problem, uh, which is how to encourage players to be collaborative and to improve the game experience for everyone. We've got a vast corpus of literature advising GMs. That's one of the things that I, among many other people, specialize in. But there's very little material to show players how to make the game enjoyable for everyone. And in fact, there are strong cultural prejudices that encourage players to be selfish, to think of the GMs have now been encouraged to be more selfless and to think about everybody at the table and to try and create a group experience. But there's very little in terms of encouraging players to yes and rather than, but my character wouldn't do that. And the biggest part of the untackled question is premise acceptance, that there's still many, many players who are trained by gaming tradition to think that their role is to resist the premise as hard as possible early on and to demand that the GM really pitch them really hard on participating in whatever the story is supposed to be, whereas we even have a negative term for that, railroading. Now, railroading is used as a negative term for anything that happens in gaming because we don't have enough critical terms, but there are a lot of people who I think it would be great to be able to encourage people to move past the, but I should have absolute freedom of choice at all times to do anything I want out of you know wish fulfillment or whatever thing I'm trying to work through versus, yeah, there's a part of that where there will be times when you get to do exactly the thing you want, but also you need to be part of a collaborative experience where you're considering everybody else at the table and trying to think, how do I make this fun? Uh, not in a way that's unfun for me, that ruins my fun, but in a way that encourages everyone else to have fun and to start looking at techniques as to how to be a great player. And the number one challenge of that would be how do you get players to want to do that and to engage with that. Next question. So the question is, what would you consider about games that uh, allow players to play many different characters, for example, as part of a community or a crew? Well, the classic example that uh, you shout out at, at this time is Ars Magica's troop-style play, which is one of those magnificent pioneering things that's so smart and so obvious that no one has done it, except for uh, Jonathan with Ars Magica way back in the day. You could make the same argument about the passions mechanic in Pendragon, that it's still ahead of the field, even though it was invented in 1984. And it's so good that people refuse to copy it. Right, yeah, they, they just can't do it. So troop-style play, for those who don't know is in which you take, there's some number of central characters, so you have your standard, this is my guy, but then there are other characters that are either communal or that you play or don't play depending. And when a story naturally centers one of the main characters, that player sort of takes on this spotlight leadership making the story happen role that Robin was talking about and drives the story forward. The other players playing, understanding that they are playing the supporting cast in this guy's story. And you change viewpoints depending on the adventure, depending on who could be there that day. It solves so many problems and it creates such rich play that, as, a, as Robin says, it has been neglected ever since. So troop-style play is the first answer to that. Another, uh, not a hard problem, but an unsolved problem to go back is the problem of community level play. You know, how do you play even just the Thieves Guild, much less the country of Cornwall or whatever. So that's a little bit tough to do that kind of distributed. I mean, Aria tried it. It's been tried a couple other times. Fate pretends it can do it, but it is a difficult thing to, to work out. 
And I feel like troop style play is probably the best system that we have for that, and some version of troop style play is maybe the answer for either generational play, uh, a la Pendragon, a la your generation starship, your village down through the centuries, or uh, big group play, uh, in which you're everyone in the castle, and the castle has various problems. The thing about Arts Magica is that the troops, the troop has a caste system, right. and so that uh, there are different levels of, of power and authority, and it would be interesting to have a community-based game, almost sort of, you know, ensemble drama version where you create a bunch of different characters, but you aren't necessarily tied to who the characters are, or uh, you might even have like a, the uh, story generation at the beginning might be everybody draws the random character that they're going to be playing that night so that you do not have individual authorship over the character. You are assigned, uh, as an actor would be, a character to play for uh, that session, and you are not trying to live out your own personal wishes and desires through that character, but it's, it's, you know, you just have that character for that night, and you have that whatever goal uh, you're working uh, toward, and so you could go backwards from the problem to, okay, who are the six people in the community who would be called on to solve this particular problem? And so some of them might recur, uh, but different people would play different characters at different times. You would introduce new characters if you didn't have a, a clear uh, group that you would have to, you know, tackle the various uh, uh, problems. And there could be, you know, both uh, there would be an emotional thing arising from that as well as, you know, problems that they would uh, address. What's that comic zero frequency where it's, there's some, you know, imaginary bureaucracy that knows who the best person at everything in the world is and that if there's a crisis that only the best parkour person in the world can do, they call them and they say, go, you're the guy. You could do that as a group. And I think that the notion of breaking that bond between player and individual character, Jeep Form has done a lot of work on that in LARPs. And so I think you could port a lot of those techniques over to straight tabletop and make it work pretty well. Uh, we have time for one last question. Prefer- is there anyone who hasn't asked a question or has one now? Well, they would have done so already, so... The question is, what is our favorite bit of weird Paris history? Robin, you've done more weird Paris history than me, so... I think the, the weirdest thing is the, the skin affair, where it turns out that the high-ranking uh, police and forensics officials were saving bits of the skin of executed prisoners and binding them into books just before the uh, mid-Belle Epoque. And the weird thing about that was not that they did it, because it turns out that's a reasonably common thing for people to do, but that once that came out, it actually hurt the people who were doing it. And the, uh, the police chief had to resign and become a private detective, and it was a big scandal and a big disgrace uh, because there are other places, like in the Anglo world, where it would have been, oh, that's, that's just their, their prerogative to do that. Because <laughs> the weird thing is taking responsibility, yeah. not the skin trade. Yeah. Um, I mean, Paris is obviously one of the great cities for messed upness. I, I feel like to some extent, when you start saying, what is the weirdest bit of Paris history, you're cheating if you say, well, Aleister Crowley, when he was in Paris self-initiating and destroying the Golden Dawn by Golden Dawning too hard, that's a great story, but Aleister Crowley really could have been in Edinburgh doing that. He didn't have to be in Paris. So I feel like for Paris, the, the weird stories are really kind of the, the greatest hits. I think when I was in Paris and I saw the obelisk on the Place de Concorde that was put up by Charles, I think, or the, the guy after Louis the uh, 17th or Louis the 18th, he puts up this obelisk to mark the spot where, you know, Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette were executed. And on the one hand, 
okay, I get it, but I don't get it. Why would you put an obelisk there? They're like your in, they're your legitimate claim to existence, but you've put an obelisk there. You've set up this occult marker that says, yes, this was a vital and important part of, of Paris history, and we're going to mark it. It's as though well, you put up the Lincoln Monument at Ford's Theater. Well, that, that's one of those answers that works backwards from <laughs> I have an obelisk. Right, yeah. <laughs> where, where can I put it? Yeah. <laughs> well, if, every, if, every, if, if, uh, if all you have is an obelisk, everything looks like the place your grandfather was murdered. And... <laughs> And when we end on a maxim, that's time to end the podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robbins. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Find such classic designs signs as, excuse me while I nap this out. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's at Robin D. Laws at Dice.Camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Thanks for coming, everybody.